Hey everybody, this is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of the OnScript podcast along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Stilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Welcome back. Um, We hope that you're all doing okay at this difficult time. Uh, We normally have our little intro ditty with um, music going along the intro, and we did originally with this episode, but I had a a little... uh, promotional idea about dropping leaflets from airplanes to promote on-script overpopulated areas, and that just didn't seem appropriate at this time. And so I decided to cut that out, and so you're getting this intro instead. Uh, But before we get into the episode, I just wanted to say special thanks to Ed Hatke for producing this show, uh, to Rebecca Terhune and Tommy Molman for help with marketing and media. And uh, special thanks in this episode to Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, for giving us a facility to host a live episode. So Aaron hosted Fleming Rutledge at Wycliffe Hall and was able to do this episode there. So thanks so much to Wycliffe for that. And we hope that you're all staying safe and healthy and uh, that you enjoy this episode. Take care, everybody. Welcome on Script listeners, this is Aaron Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. And you're in for a real treat this episode because today we have the privilege of hosting Fleming Rutledge, a formidable author and preacher and teacher of other preachers. Reverend Fleming Rutledge was ordained to the diaconate of the Episcopal Church in 1975 and was one of the first women to be ordained to the priesthood of the Episcopal Church in January of 1977. She holds an MDiv from Union Theological Seminary. She has been awarded two Honorary Doctorate of Divinity degrees from Virginia Theological Seminary and Wycliffe College in Toronto. She is the author of numerous books, including The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, published by Erdman's in 2015, which was the winner of Christianity Today's Book of the Year Award in 2017. According to her Twitter bio, she's radical and reformed, non-academic, biblical theologian, anti-gnostic, anglophile, francophile, KJV lover, New York Mets fan, married 60 years by the grace of God. Fleming, welcome to OnScript. Thank you, Erin. So today's episode is a rather special episode because in addition to hosting Fleming Rutledge, we are also recording this episode before a live audience in the upper common room at Wycliffe Hall. So if you hear oohs and ahs and gasps (laughs) and laughter in the background, those are the sounds of our wonderful students and staff uh, here at Wycliffe who are here to benefit firsthand from Fleming's wisdom. And since Fleming Rutledge has written a number of books, all of which are worth reading, I'm not going to focus on any one of them in this interview. So instead, I'm going to ask questions that I hope will open up space for Fleming to share her pearls of wisdom and, dare I say, prophetic insight into the church and culture. So, Fleming, you have 40 years of experience as an ordained minister. How far back does the calling to ministry extend for you? Did you think as a child, I want to be a preacher when I grow up? Yes. (laughs) Not in in those terms, but I, when I was about nine, ten maybe, we had a pageant and I dressed up as Thomas Cranmer. True story. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, sometimes God just brings someone up from infancy for reasons known to him. My grandmother, who died when I was seven, uh, is the person that more than anyone else taught me out of the King James Version, and she knew the Lord. That's what it took. There were many other people too, many, but she was crucial. Mm. I often ask biblical scholars when they come on the podcast, how did you get interested in the Bible? But it seems like an odd question to ask someone, how did you get interested in preaching? So when you think about preaching, is it a vocation? Is it an interest? Is it a compulsion? How do you think about it? 
Well, it certainly is. Uh, St. Paul said, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I preach not the gospel. And I identify very profoundly with that. I have for a long time. Those specific words, that verse, that um, exclamation of Paul. I do think that people sometimes know from infancy, childhood, what God wants them to do and commissions them to do. And it, it doesn't have to be ordained ministry. It can be anything, really. It can be becoming an architect or I met someone, was it here, who was a computer science. Uh, actually, I think that was at Oriole, a young woman who is a computer scientist but a profoundly committed Christian. And that's a wonderful thing um, that God does. And it is what, it is God's doing. Hmm. Christians need to understand that, that God calls people and equips them for ministry in whatever sort of ministry he chooses. Ordained ministry is not the only kind of ministry. I don't need to tell you that, I know you know that, but helping other people to identify their ministries and to specifically to identify their spiritual gifts, that's been an important emphasis that I've had for years, uh, helping other people to understand that they are spirit, that they have what called, Paul called spiritual gifts. Everybody has one or two or three of them, and uh, sometimes they blend into one another. And it's very comforting, I find, to people to realize that their spiritual gifts are from God and therefore can and will be used for God, by God to build up his church. That's a great thing to know. A lot of people don't know that. Hmm. And I've been so blessed by your exercise of your spiritual gift of preaching over the years. Uh, when I started reading your sermons, it was about a decade ago for me. Um, and I... And I think what's so abundant when I read your work, um, especially maybe your big book on crucifixion, that your, your writing, your sermons are um, informed not only with a, by a deep engagement with the Bible and a deep love for the Bible, but also by a lifetime of listening to the culture uh, and speaking to the culture and being informed by the culture. But it, in your preface, I think, in, in your preface to the crucifixion, you mentioned that you've preached on Good Friday every year for 30 years. More than that. More than that. Anyway. More than that. Yeah, a, lot, a lot of years, yes. A lot of years. Every Good Friday uh, for 30 years. So how, how did that experience of preaching every Good Friday for more than 30 years shape your understanding of the crucifixion? Well, gosh, I mean, when you have to prepare sermons for a three-hour service, it has to do something to you. I think that I think anybody can understand that. If you if you are required to produce sometimes seven, not always. I have sometimes instead of preaching seven short reflections, I have preached three long ones on Good Friday. But uh, to tell the truth, though, I was already on that track because I heard one of the great preachers of the 50s, 60s, 70s in the United States, Tom, Ted Ferris, the uh, rector of Trinity Copley Square in Boston, famous church, famous pulpit, famous preacher. And I heard him preach on Good Friday once, and I could see how profoundly engaged he was in what he was saying and doing and how much it shook him to do it. Hmm. I could tell that it was draining him, but even as his physical self drained, his proclamatory self strengthened. It was a powerful thing to see. Many people experienced that with his preaching. You could see that it had drained him and yet the more it drained of him, the more powerful it got in praise to God. And, you know, I'm not sure I've ever said that before. These kinds of occasions draw things that I hadn't expected to say. But remembering that 
is important to me now that I have remembered it. I'm not sure I've ever talked about it before in those terms. Not I, but Christ in me. The preacher really needs to disappear behind the word. Now only God can make that happen. But I have experienced again and again and again in my preaching life that the word takes over because the word has its own inherent power. It's happened so many times that I have I try to expect it and wait for it. I'm saddened that so many people who preach don't seem to understand that the word has a power in and of itself that can seize the preacher and make the preacher an instrument. I don't think most of the preachers I hear have any understanding of that. So insofar as I'm able in the time I have left to communicate what a what an incredible vocation that is to put yourself in the service of the Word of God. Oh, my goodness. Just talking about it to you, I kind of choke up. It's just so powerful, so much unlike anything else. But any, anybody who puts himself or herself into the service of God can experience that in any form ministering to others, teaching a Bible study or leading a Bible study, leading people in prayer, visiting sick people, encouraging other Christians, one of the most important of the spiritual gifts, encouragement. Anyone can experience being used by God. And even if you don't think you can experience it, God may take over in spite of yourself. In fact, he does and will. <laughs> you have this great quotation in one of your sermons in Advent, which I, I think is my new favorite book also, because you told me it was your favorite book earlier. But in, in this sermon, you have this quotation from Annie Dillard, and she says, Why do we people in churches seem like cheerful tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. <laughs> what does she mean by that, and why is that an apt picture of what we should experience in the church? I knew Annie Dillon. She has dementia now, it's really terrible that someone with such a mind would have, had, would have dementia. She was a fierce person and she had a, an understanding and a love for a fierce God. And that, you know, that quotation is quoted all the time. I hear it all the time from people who understand it. It's not quoted by people who don't understand it. It's quoted by people who relish the idea that God is powerful. God is not just this sort of spiritual entity blessing people occasionally and waiting for us to do our spiritual disciplines and watching to make sure that we perform our Christian duties and then maybe he'll approve of us and feeding us, yes, in the Eucharist and drawing us together in groups to share our experiences and it's just all very soft. Ever since I was a child I liked hearing about power and I think everybody's interested in power People, a lot of people pretend they're not interested in power. They distance themselves from power, and power is oppressive. Power is controlling. Power is the root of all evil. 
colonialism, racism, imperial presidencies, don't get me started. <laughs> the misuse of power is indeed, in a sense, the greatest weapon of the enemy, the adversary, as I like to call Satan. But the, the power, worldly power, which is what we love, is no match for the power of God. And that's what a lot of preachers that I hear don't seem to understand. And in fact, a lot of people in the churches who really don't have any concept of the power of the Word of God, because they've never been taught it. And well, Foucault, who I don't, not that I'm some big Foucault expert, but Michel Foucault does make an interesting distinction between power as coercion and power as agency. Power as coercion is indeed malignant. I can almost immediately think about the power that men exert over women in some cultures. I don't feel that myself so much anymore. But when I hear about some of the things that have happened to women in other settings, it really sets my hair on fire. Um, malignant power is a terrible, dehumanizing thing and should be opposed by Christians at every level. But the power of God is made perfect in weakness. It's made perfect in crucifixion. It's made perfect in the giving over of the suffering servant. That's real power. And more and more I find that it's, I feel, very important to communicate to people who are training for ministry, whether it's lay ministry or uh, ordained, uh, that God is powerful. I've been told, no, no, we don't believe that. We don't. We stay away from the idea of power, quote unquote. We stay away from the idea of power. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I gather that this powerful God, this crash helmet uh, preaching that you're promoting, and I think very powerfully, um, it's grounded in an apocalyptic understanding of God's action in the world. And we've talked a lot about apocalyptic on OnScript because we've had Beverly Gaventa as a guest. We've had Philip Ziegler as a guest. Who was the second person? Philip Ziegler as a guest. Philip Ziegler, yeah. these are all my best buddies. I, I know, and, and it seems like Union Seminary is the, and, and we've talked a lot about J. Lewis Martin and his, um, J. Lewis Martin and his Lou Martin. <laughs> I can't believe and, it. I mean, we haven't had- I wonder I feel at home here. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. So why, um, I've asked this question to Beverly and I've asked this question to Phil, but why do you think that apocalyptic, um, that, that notion of apocalyptic, first of all, what do you mean by that term? And why do you think that it's, um, why do you think that it's pastorally valuable to talk about the apocalyptic action of God and, and theologically valuable? All right, those are two different questions, they are. so keep me on track. Okay. If I forget to get to the second one, okay. remind me. That's fair. <laughs> well, naturally, this is one of my favorite subjects. When, you've been, when you have been brought up, trained by a group of extremely important scholars, I've done a little family tree, which a lot of people seem to like. It's on my website apocalyptic family tree. Um, it's it's uh, pretty extensive. It goes all the way back to the Bloomhart brothers uh, of Bad Brühl in Germany, uh, who were very influential for Bart in his young days. And uh, so it's it's the Bloomharts and then Bart and then uh, Kaysemann, Ernst Kaysemann in Tübingen. Those are the great-grandfathers, the grandfather and the father. Um, of the, this way of thinking, and it's very controversial. Aaron has asked me to identify some of the central themes 
and um, ways of interpreting scripture that characterize apocalyptic theology as it's been called. I think the central idea, as I understand it, is that when we read the story of God in our holy scripture, by the time we get to the late books of the Old Testament, Daniel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, and during the intertestamental period, something happens within the Hebrew mind to rearrange the way we understand the world, the cosmos, which is full-blown in the New Testament. There isn't a single book in the New Testament that's not affected by this worldview. The pastorals least, but even the pastorals have a hint of it. I would go far enough to say that it is difficult. We really can't understand the Old, the New Testament, without understanding the apocalyptic matrix out of which it arises. And the most fundamental idea, all of this is in my Advent book, all of this, the most fundamental idea is that there are three agencies, not just two. Most Christian people think in terms of two agencies. If you think of God as an agency, I hope you do, I'm sure you do, but a lot of people don't. Uh, if God is one of the, if God is the major agency, the one who is able to create out of nothing, and then the human race has agency granted by God. But then there's this third party, whom we call Satan, the enemy, the adversary, Beelzebub, the devil, the prince of the power of the air, and Jesus in John calls him the ruler of this world. Now, this is figurative language, but unless we can recognize, name, identify, and understand, well, not exactly understand, but come to terms with the fact that there is this third agency, I would argue, along with my colleagues, I mean, I'm just sort of a mini-colleague because I'm not an academic, but anyway. Um, I would argue that this gives us an understanding of the world, the cosmos, which is larger, more comprehensive, more biblical, especially New Testament, and more useful for understanding the issues of our present time than any other way of understanding and interpreting the New Testament. But it begins, let me hasten to remind us all, that it begins in the period of the exile. Isaiah 40 through 55 has been called, Isaiah, the second Isaiah, has, if, if you will, has been called the father of apocalyptic because he has a, this, the, whoever wrote Isaiah 40 through 55 has a cosmic vision. And we don't see the enemy in second, in, in second Isaiah or Deutero or Isaiah or whatever you want to say. But we do see this vast ca canvas spread out in which God is doing everything. It, it's a sustained picture from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 55, a sustained proclamation, hymn, poem, epic, with God as the subject of every single verse, essentially. I've often suggested that preachers take a couple, three, four months to preach through second Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 55, and with the promise that it will change their outlook. I've never known anybody to take me up on that, but I still believe it. I believe that it is transformative in a way that would really help preaching because God is the subject of everything. God is making everything happen. 
Whereas we like to think that we have Pelagians that we are, we want to think that we can make a contribution instead of participating in what God has already done. Participation is a key word. We participate in what God is already doing, but we want to take back the initiative. Um, so apocalyptic theology takes the devil very seriously, takes evil very seriously. That's one of its great uh, strengths, I think. Since the Second World War, we've had to face evil in a way that we hadn't before. And this has been commented on by numerous secular commentators, that we now know that evil can take, can take hold of a whole people and destroy whole peoples. And we sit by and do nothing, essentially except for those who resist. And resistance is a key word in apocalyptic because that's what we can do. We can resist. That's what the people of God are called and empowered to do, but very few of us do resist. Mostly we just go along, hope for the best. Um, the second idea, the first idea then is three agencies, God, the human race, and the enemy. Second idea is that of the two ages. And I'll stop there for now. The two ages are spoken of somewhat obliquely sometimes, but sometimes quite directly. This present evil age, Paul refers to. And Hebrews says something, uh, Jesus has appeared at the end of the ages. There is a, a break in the history of the creation. The break occurs with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a certain discontinuity there. Paul likens it to the creation itself and talks about God calling into being, the, calling into existence the things that do not exist, Romans 4. Paul is the easiest place to see where apocalyptic is at work, but it's very strong in, for instance, Mark, where Jesus is in battle with the demons from the first moment that he enters the public arena. And it's in all the Gospels. He speaks, as I already mentioned, in John of the Prince. I know that's Ephesians. He calls him the ruler of this world. And when he is about to be crucified, he says, the, world, the ruler of this world is coming. Now that's really important because it means that Jesus, in, that God in Jesus in a sense, made himself subject to the ruler of this world. And in doing so, conquered. So it's connected to the idea of Christus Victor as a theme in Scripture, a very powerful theme in Scripture to interpret the death of Christ. And in my big book, The Crucifixion, I argue that we can and should um, hold Two themes, many themes really, but the biggest themes I think are that of atonement by substitution and Christus Victor. And if we don't, if we get those out of balance, we're doing violence, I think, to the scripture itself. Oh, that's a lot to say in just a few words. I have unpacked it at 600 plus pages, but. Um, the whole idea of there being two ages split by the crucifixion so that there has been a change in the world on account of the Son of God's entrance into our history. And well, Romans 7 and 8 kind of spell this out. Romans 11 spells it out. Mm -hmm. um, I'll end with that. Let me just re recapitulate what I said, though, if I can remember. Um, first, I talked about the three agencies, not just two, but three, the, 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 uh, the demonic powers being almost never as powerful as God, but a, heck, a whole lot power, more powerful than the human race. Paul, by the way, doesn't call it, and I don't think Paul ever mentions the devil. He refers to the rule of sin and death, and a lot of Pauline scholars capitalize sin and death, capital S, capital D, to indicate their status as powers, capital P. Um, that's Paul's way of talking about Satan. 
So the two agencies and then the two ages, with the break coming at the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that changes everything. One of the things that I so appreciate about the crucifixion, well, two things, I'll say two things. One is that um, when I read it, it it makes me love the Bible more and it makes me love, um, it, it makes me have an appreciation for things that, that I didn't see before. Um, before I read, first of all, Lou Martin's commentary on Galatians. I think that was the first aha moment for me, uh, reading his commentary on Galatians. And then I had a similar number of aha moments connecting those that, that worldview to preaching, to um, to life in parish ministry. I just I found that so, so profound. Um, and also uh, to see the power of the cross, not just for the Galatians, but in parish ministry. And, it, and you have this striking phrase that you repeat about the cross in the crucifixion. You say that it's a, it, the most irreligious object that has ever been made into or taken up into a religion. You call it an irreligious object um, because it's abhorrent. And so what makes the cross so abhorrent? That's an easy question perhaps. But given that it's so abhorrent, given that it's irreligious, why is it essential for the, for the Christian faith? Not just Jesus's death, but Jesus's death on a cross. Well, the thing that I've done in my book, The Crucifixion, which it's a very pretentious book in a way, because again, I'm not an academic, but I'm pretending yeah, to Yeah, you be. keep saying that. It just makes me feel inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, I'm, I'm a scholar, I guess, but I don't, you know, there's no question about the fact that I'm not an academic. I don't have an academic degree. I don't belong to any of the academic guilds. I don't go to the academic meetings. I don't present academic papers. That's the sense oh, sure. that I mean. I'm a I scholar. I, I'm not so but, sure that makes you not an academic, but anyway, I know what let's you get, mean. <laughs> there was something that I was going to say, and I've already forgotten, because this is my age showing. What were we talking <laughs> no, about? No, we were talking about why is the cross oh, essential? Well, the thing that I do in my book, The Crucifixion, that I think is unusual, is that I ask over and over again, why crucifixion? Why not beheading? Why not hanging? Why not firing squad? Why crucifixion? And I go into great detail about this. And I keep asking this throughout. This is the thing that I think makes my book a little different. I keep saying, why crucifixion? Why the most evil, most sadistic, most disgusting, most grotesque method of putting a person to death, perhaps ever, and God obviously chose this. The Roman Empire, that's what they did. This is what the Roman Empire had figured out was the most dehumanizing, most cruel, most effective way of obliterating a person's influence from the entire human story that could possibly be invented. And the public nature of it is part of that. And I ask this question throughout. And I hope there's a little suspense that I've created there. <laughs> but to give it all away, I believe that the reason that it's crucifixion and that it was public, well, let me just go back a minute and say, it must correspond to something. The, the evil, the grotesque inhumanity and sadism of, cruel, of crucifixion, it must correspond to something, otherwise we can't explain it. And so the, the, the conclusion I work toward is that it corresponds to the weight of sin. It corresponds to the power of sin. It, it corresponds to the ubiquity of sin and the fact that sin is able to suck up everybody and everything into itself, which is symbolized by the crucifixion being on a hill in public on the main road where everyone is invited to come and revile the victims. This is the way the Romans did it. 
so that, you know, now you don't have to read the 600 pages. <laughs> well, um, if I can commend one... It corresponds to sin, and I love mm -hmm. Anselm's famous statement, which I wish I could quote in Latin because it's much better. Um, you have not yet considered the gravity of sin. And if I can commend one chapter from this book, if you read none other, no other chapter, which you should all read the, the 600 pages, because it, unlike some 600-page books where you, you feel the weight of those 600 pages sort of weighing down on you because they tend to be dense, this is, this is, this is profound writing, and it's also beautifully written. I have, I have enjoyed every, every page of this book has some pearl of wisdom that I've written down and, and cataloged away somewhere. But I came all the way to England to hear that. But there's a chapter, there's a chapter in this book um, that, that you say in the preface took you two years to write on the descent, Christ's descent into hell. And in that chapter, you, you, you there and elsewhere lament over the loss of the concept of evil in American culture, in the American church. Um, why do you think that we've begun to lack the capacity or maybe lack the courage to speak honestly about evil? Well, I don't really know. I'm not sure that I have given that a whole lot of thought, but just off the top of my head, um, Americans haven't really experienced evil in the way that uh, Europe did uh, during the wars. And Americans tend to be op optimistic and cheerful and we can accomplish whatever we want to set our minds to and God helps those who help themselves. That's a great American creed. And there have been studies of numerous, big, big chunks of American Christians think that that's in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. It's true. Um, that makes me less optimistic than I was <laughs> as an American. So I don't think Americans are very good at thinking about evil. When Americans think about evil, they think about it in tabloid terms. The tabloids will put the face of a, a serial killer on the front page, and there will be a headline like, The Eyes of Evil. <laughs> so we can project everything onto the serial killer. One of the most pitiful examples of that was this young woman, I've forgotten her name. She had two or three children, little children, and she put them in the car and drove into a lake, and they all drowned. Mm -hmm. And the tabloids took pictures of her and put her on the front of the, you know, monster. She was a pathetic victim who was taken over by, I would say, the enemy. Americans don't seem to be able to think that way. Um, we are encouraged by the culture to think in terms of we good, them evil. Mm. I think this is a human trait, but it's not particularly American, but it is so noticeable. Mm. Uh, so noticeable, and right now it's at its peak mm. because of our peerless leader, identifying other people as evil in order to exonerate ourselves. And what you want to say is that the, the thin red line cuts through each one of us. Yeah, and I got that, of course, from Václav Havel, who said it so memorably about Czechoslovakia hmm. during the communist era. And I have read a book or two by other Czechs who have described the reign of Stalin in such staggeringly vivid terms. In a way, it was worse than being under Hitler because you were not, in Czechoslovakia, you weren't sure who the enemy was. And that's why I think this is really important. People informed on each other in a way that didn't really, it happened during the Nazis, but you always knew who the Germans were. You always knew who the Nazis were. But in, under Stalin, you couldn't be sure. And I've never read anything that affected me more deeply in this regard than a couple of books I read, I won't go into it now, by people who lived through the Stalinist period in Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. 
And then Václav Havel, the great, great thinker, uh, said in more detail than I'm going to say now, he just said that you could not be sure because the line between good and evil ran through each person. And uh, Solzhenitsyn said the same thing in the Gulag Archipelago. Mm. And that, for me, has become a kind of way of understanding the world. That mm. The line between good and evil runs through each person. And the great heroes of the faith, the Bonhoeffers and the, the White Rose kids, and they, they are the first to say that they are not without sin. But I really, really believe in resistance. And when we see the church not resisting, living in an empire of lies and not resisting, I just breaks my heart. I don't know what to make of it. And the first act of resisting is to see. And you say that also. The first act of resisting is to see. Is to see and identify. And identify. Yes, to see and identify. Very true. Very and good. And I think that, that that is such a profound way of, of, of beginning because we, sometimes I feel stuck. I feel like I can't do anything, but I can do that. I can see. And as someone who's experienced some horrendous evil in my life, that chapter made me feel seen. So I appreciate it. Erin, I'd like to take you home with me. <laughs> <laughs> but it did, it brought me to tears when I read it because it, it, it's such, a, it's such a, an important thing to be seen when something like that happens. Um, well, I do tell people if they're only gonna read one chapter, I think that's the one, the most original <laughs> and the most important chapter is the one called The Descent Into Hell. That's what the name of it is. Hmm. It's, I think it's kind of original in a way because I do too. a lot of people are not defending that phrase in the creed. Calvin thought it was an important phrase, and yet I go to Reformed churches and they don't use it. Mm. Yeah, I think that, and then uh, I've been reading, I reread that in Advent this week, and the two of them together were just such a, a blessing. Um, just such a blessing. Uh, are you up for, well, sometimes we do a speed You're round. You're a theologian. Don't tell people that. that <laughs> I sometimes I sometimes joke that I got the wrong PhD because I because I like Greek, uh, but that's another story. Um, are you up for a speed round? Sometimes we do speed rounds where I ask a, a series of questions and you answer however you want to, but you don't have to. You can in, in like a sentence, and you don't have to defend what you say. Does Sounds that, great. Okay, great. Okay, and they're and they're a little all over the place. That's Sounds that's the terrific. that's the fun of this. So, if I invited you over for dinner, what is one thing that you would hope I wouldn't be serving you? Beets. Beets. Okay. Beets. I like Absolutely. Uh, borscht. 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 Okay. Well, there's no chance of that happening. <laughs> uh, mountains or ocean? I adore them both. <laughs> Fair enough. I do. What's your favorite thing about Oxford so far? Antiquity. <laughs> What's a trend in society that scares you? Self-help. Self-care. <laughs> Self-invention. Hmm. Self-everything. What's your favorite character in The Lord of the Rings? If it was the movie, I'd say Legolas. <laughs> in the book, in the book, um, what's her name? Eowyn? Mm. Maybe. She's the one that, not not the not the sort of namby pamby. What, what's the name of the one? See, I spent a long time. The name of the queen who marries Aragorn, who, what is her name? Arwen. What? No, Arwen. Arwen, Arwen, yeah. Yeah, she doesn't interest me as much. I think Eowyn is very interesting. <laughs> What's Faramir. Faramir maybe is my favorite. Mm. And what is the most important book in theology or biblical studies, in your opinion, in the last 50 years? Bart. Hmm. 
Well, he's not quite, he's more than 50 years. Fair enough, but um, no one said that though. We ask this all the time. Like this is one of our standard questions. I don't think anyone said Karl Barth, which I find fascinating. Maybe they're more adhering to the, the time frame, but I kind of doubt well, it. Well then after that, I would say Kazeman, Ernst Kazeman. As a biblical interpreter, now in terms mm. of systematic theology, that remains to be seen, I think. Mm. I think Bart is with the Titans for the ages. Mm. I mean, Bart is up there with Augustine, Calvin, Thomas, without question, I think. Mm. And anybody who's not reading Bart seriously is on the wrong track. We have to, <laughs> ha we have, to have these great figures mm. in our curriculum and in our oh, uh, basic understanding as ordinance, I think. Who did I leave out? No, it, you, you only have to answer it. You don't have to defend it. That's the whole I idea know, of I know, I just got, a, I got interested <laughs> in my own utterances. <laughs> Augustine, Bart, hmm? Calvin, Thomas. Who did I leave out? <laughs> okay, moving on. It's your list. What? <laughs> I said it's your list. You get to you get to make it. Well, I'm afraid I've forgotten somebody. Oh, I mean, well. What was the second part of the question? There wasn't one. Oh, just, I thought there was. No, no. You just get to. No. This is really fun. Yeah. See. <laughs> and the the last speed round question is a it's a more profound question, but the speed round I want you to answer it quickly if you can. How would you like most to be remembered? She preached Christ. I feel like we could just end the interview there, but I have a few more questions I want to ask. Pearls of wisdom. Um, you've preached Christ for 40 years plus. That's more than, a lot more than 40 years. I, that, I hate to correct, I know. I'm, I'm sort of moving up to 50 years, so My. I'm sort of hanging on to that. <laughs> that's true, I that's suppose true. it's very, you know, it's probably very conceited of me. No, for, for, for 50 years you've been preaching Christ. Um, what lessons have you learned along the way that you think would be most beneficial for people who are starting out? You know, this is not necessarily what I would choose to say first, but it pops into my mind. I would, and I think, by the way, I taught uh, 30 students for a term at Wycliffe in Toronto. It's the only time I've ever done anything formal like that. and. It, it was a great surprise to me because I spent most, much of the time, perhaps not most, but much of the time, at least 50% of the time, just working on delivery. I hadn't expected that. I had expected to spend 10% of the time working on delivery and the rest of the time working on content. But delivery, it turns out, is crucial because I've heard wonderful sermons by scholars but their delivery was so dull and so dry and so academic, if you will, that it just sort of sank like a stone, except for those who are accustomed to listening to the academic people present papers. So delivery is crucial. The engagement of the whole self with what is being proclaimed. Um, I forgot the question. What would you like to pass on to people who are just starting out in well, ministry? Well, I would, I would say that give some thought to your own confidence in what you have been called to do if you're going to preach. If you are timid, uncertain, not quite sure, that's going to be a killer for your preaching. And once I heard a man of considerable experience in the church, but he, he didn't preach every Sunday, but he was a very bright, 60-ish, experienced churchman, clergyman, and he was invited to preach on a fairly regular basis, maybe once every six months, I mean weeks, six weeks in a parish he was not the rector. So I was looking forward to hearing him preach because I liked him. And he preached this sermon and it got off to a great start. 
and um, but it dribbled away into nothing at the end. And afterwards, I said, you know, I've really been looking forward to your sermon, but you didn't. You let us down at the end. And he said, well, you don't want to give away too much too soon. He wasn't going to preach again for six more weeks. <laughs> but even if he wasn't going to preach again until the next day, you know, that was really, a, I have never forgotten how appalled. Uh, um, I think it was Whitfield who said, I preached, you can probably tell me, I preached as a man never to preach again. A dying man to dying man. That's, <clears throat> that's my motto. I may never preach again. I'm a dying woman preaching to dying people. Annie Dillard said that about me. She said she preaches as if like a dying person to dying people. I don't know where she got that. I don't think she knew anything about Whitfield, but anyway. Um, Wesley said something like, I can't quote this exactly, but the gist of it was, was, you must preach as though someone's life depended on this. If I could leave that behind, that would be worth a lot. The trouble is it has to have the right content too. Hmm. If it's a self-help sermon, that's not the right content. Hmm. But to think this may be the last chance that I ever get. Yes, you do want to give it all. I'm just thinking about Annie Dillard again. She advised writers, if you have an idea, use it immediately. Don't save it, don't hoard it. Give it away immediately. That's been helpful to me. Hmm. This, this conversation, I think, is one of those moments in my life where I'll look back and think, God really spoke to us here. So I just want to thank you on behalf of us at Wycliffe, on behalf of us at Onscript for being with us in this place at this time at Fleming. It has been such a pleasure. And I, I commend her books to you. Um, I hope that you will go away and read them and be enriched by them as I have been for 10 years because they have meant so much to my own development as a scholar, as a thinker, and mostly as a person who's trying to do my best to preach Christ or write Christ when I write and do my scholarship. So on behalf of all of us, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.